Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 18. The Death of Barbarossa. This episode of Beyond Barbarossa is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to face Operation Barbarossa, the greatest land invasion in history. You can find the Eastern Front Trilogy on Amazon and other bookstores, including Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, draft to digital and COBOL. Just search for author Scott Burry, B-U-R-Y. And it's also supported by people like you on Patreon. To support the podcast for as little as $3 per month, just go to beyondbarbarossa.ca and click the support on Patreon link at the top right. Soviet Union, 1941. Germany launches the greatest land invasion in history. It immediately wipes out the Red Air Force and decimates border defenses. The Red Army retreats and retreats and retreats, except when it gets surrounded and captured. Millions are lost. The situation is hopeless. The Germans besiege Leningrad and the tank commanders get within sight of the spires of Moscow's churches. But then winter arrives, freezing the mechanized German army to the ground. The coldest winter on record stops the invincible Wehrmacht. And that's how the USSR was able to hold the Germans back until the US and Britain won the war. Right? Hmm, let me check my notes. Seems there was a lot more to that. We'd better take a closer look. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the Redbeard Studio in the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people, sometimes called Ottawa. The story so far. This podcast has been describing the progress of the Second World War in Eastern Europe mostly chronologically, starting with June 22, 1941, and the launch of Operation Barbarossa. As I said, the largest land-based invasion in history. We've covered the invasion, the great battles, the encirclements of Bialystok and Minsk, Bryansk, Vyazma, and Kiev. 
we covered the beginning of the siege of Leningrad, and we ended in the last episode with a look at the reality of life under Nazi occupation, and a little bit about communist occupation as well. Operation Typhoon was the Nazis' last great push to take Moscow in October and November 1941. This push brought the Wehrmacht within sight, so some German officers reported, of the spires of the churches of Moscow. One unit reportedly got to within 19 miles, or about 30 kilometers, of the Kremlin. But... That's as close as they got. The Stavka, the Soviet high command, that's Stalin, Zhukov, and Timoshenko, really. They threw every person who could lift a rifle or a shovel into the defense of the city. And this stopped the German advance. That's the story. And much of it is true. But there's more to it, as always. Before I get too deep into this episode, I want to address a concern some listeners have raised. Up to this point, Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast, has focused on the Nazis as invaders and the communist Soviet forces, the Red Army, as resisting and failing. You could almost characterize this fight as a predator-victim scenario. However, the truth is um, more complicated. By 1941, the USSR and Nazi Germany both had racked up a long record of brutalizations of their own people as well as of other countries. As one of my favorite podcasters, Daniele Bolelli, says in History on Fire, this could be described as a classic bad guy versus bad guy story. Operation Barbarossa and the war in Eastern Europe pitted two evil regimes in a death struggle, a maelstrom that pulled countries, ethnic groups, and tens of millions of people into its deadly chaos. Yes, there were good people involved. There were acts of heroism and humanity. There were also horrible crimes and violations of human rights committed by evil people led by two of the greatest murderers of the 20th century. So before we get uh, any further, let's pull back to a perspective from uh, orbit, I guess, um, and look at the war, the Second World War in 1941 from a broad perspective. On November 15th, the British aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal was torpedoed by a German U-boat in the Mediterranean Sea. It sank the next day, so that would be the 16th. To the north, Finland is having success against the Soviets, but even so, Operation Silver Fox is grinding to a halt with the failure to cut off the rail link from Murmansk to Moscow. Britain that day issued a... Uh, an ultimatum to Finland to cease its operations against the USSR. Uh, 
because, yeah, that was in support of Nazi Germany. Finland would eventually agree and halt its advances on November 17th. And all this was covered in episode 11 of this very podcast. So if you want to cover that on uh, Operation Arctic Fox and Operation Silver Fox, please uh, go back and have a listen to those episodes. On November 18th in North Africa, Operation Crusader is getting going. That's uh, where British and Commonwealth forces penetrated from Egypt into Libya. So they're heading west to relieve the siege of Tobruk, albeit temporarily. And on the 24th of November, uh, Field Marshal Rommel moved his forces eastward 15 miles into Egypt without encountering opposition. Uh, you should take a, a listen to some uh, other podcasts about these very complicated back and forths going on in North Africa. I recommend uh, Ray Harris's podcast, The History of World War II. In December, um, on December 3rd, that is, the UK, uh, Britain, expanded conscription to all men between 18 and 50. It was desperate. Women were not exempt either. Women would serve in fire brigades and women's auxiliaries. On December 6th, Britain declared war on Finland. It wasn't happy even with Finland's cessation of forward operations against the USSR. In the Soviet Union, on December 2nd and 3rd, the Red Army's last remaining units in Estonia and Finland evacuated to the naval base on Cotland Island, which is in the Gulf of Finland, it just west of Leningrad. So it's, yeah, it's kind of the port of Leningrad, the naval port for Leningrad. In uh, Lithuania, the city of Vilna, now known as Vilnius, what began was the Vilna Aktion, where um, the Gestapo murdered 157 Jews and another uh, 800 Jews and 10 Poles the next day. On December 15th, British and Commonwealth forces pushed the German Africa Corps back west to El Algila. December 7th was the day, is the day that lives forever in infamy, the day that Japanese forces bombed the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor and declared war on the U.S. and the U.K., Japan also, that same day, invaded Thailand and Malaya, attacked Guam, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Shanghai, and Singapore. Canada and Australia declared war on Japan that day, followed by the U.S. the next day, as well as the U.K., the Netherlands, and New Zealand. On December 8th, China declared war on Japan, officially, although they'd been fighting since 1937. On December 11th, Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S., which answered in kind, declaring war on them. Soon, Bulgaria and Hungary were officially in this world war. Roosevelt, the president of the U.S., uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, announced a Germany-first policy. That is, they would focus on defeating Germany first before Japan so that's a very quick wrap-up of what's going on in the World War, or at least some of the events, in November, December 1941. 
just to provide some context. It's really a very low point for the Allies. And now, let's zoom in on the Eastern Front. The end of 1941 was a low point for the Allies, but it was a low point for both sides on the Eastern Front. According to the Soviet High Command, the Stavka, the Red Army had lost over 350,000 men killed, another 378,000 missing, and over 1 million wounded. And you can bet that Stalin lowballed those numbers. According to Anthony Tooker Jones in Slaughter on the Eastern Front, Hitler and Stalin's War, 1941-1945, to quote, In the first two weeks of Operation Typhoon, that's uh, in October of 1941, the assault of the drive toward Moscow. Anyway, back to the quote. Uh, Army Group Center had inflicted at least 700,000 casualties on the defenders at relatively little cost to itself. End quote. It's kind of hard to reconcile 700,000 casualties in two weeks in October with one million between June and December, but, uh, uh, well, these numbers, numbers in wartime are impossible to verify. We can see that today. Even so, things weren't all victorious or weren't, as they say, all sunshine and rainbows for the invading Germans. By the end of November, German forces had suffered 743,000 casualties. That's nearly a quarter of their total strength going in in June. And while they had 101 infantry divisions in the field, in reality, their strength was equivalent to 65 divisions. The 17 panzer divisions, that's tank divisions, on the Eastern Front had the combined strength by November of six divisions, one-third of their deployment on paper. Operation Typhoon, the advance on Moscow, took the Germans to within 19 miles of the Kremlin, But that was the limit. By then, the Germans were worn out. They had lost, as I said, a quarter of their strength and two-thirds of their armor. The terrain, particularly the dust and the mud, wore out the German vehicles far faster than they had anticipated. The mud of the Rasputitsa, the season of no roads, the fall and the spring, where the rains turn the rich soils, the fields of Russia and Ukraine, into deep, sucking mud, not only slowed the Germans' advance, it swallowed whole vehicles and made the soldiers who were trying to advance through it that much more vulnerable. At this point, let's take a short break for station identification, and we'll come back and take a close look at the real effects of General Winter. Thanks for coming back. Now, the arrival of the legend, 
general winter, which was a very real thing and had a very real impact. While it's a cliche, general winter had a major impact on the Germans, on the whole war. The winter of 1941 to 42 was the coldest of the 20th century. On November 30th, Field Marshal von Bock, the head, the commander of most of the forces on the uh, whole Eastern Front, the guy in the field, reported temperatures of minus 45 Celsius, a mean temperature between the 4th to the 7th of December, 1941, from minus 36 to minus 38 degrees Celsius. Soviet records dispute that. They claim that the lowest temperatures in December was only minus 28. But let's face it, that's still damn cold. Colonel General Reinhardt, commander of the 41st Motorized Corps, operating outside Moscow, wrote in his journal on 7th of December 1941, Quote, Troops could not tow the guns out of their emplacements. The motors of some vehicles would not start. The grease on the bearings and in transmissions and others froze while they were running. The 1st Panzer Division, which had been headed toward Krasnaya Polyana, which is northwest of Moscow, had turned around during the night with orders to block the Soviet thrust toward Klin. In the morning, it was extended over 40 miles, bucking snowdrifts on jammed roads, with its tanks low on fuel. End quote. German planes stored on open ground had to be heated for hours every morning before their engines could start. Soviet aircraft, on contrast, stayed overnight in heated hangars, so they got off the ground with, well, less trouble. According to David Glantz in his book Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's Invasion of Russia, 1941, quote, As early as 8 December, the 2nd Panzer Army reported that one of its corps had suffered 1,500 frostbite cases, 350 requiring amputations. Many vehicles and guns had to be abandoned. Supplies were running short and a serious crisis in confidence had broken out among the troops and NCOs, or non-commissioned officers. The German generals knew they could not continue, not in the winter, in these conditions. They recommended to their commander, Adolf Hitler, to withdraw and dig into defensible positions. But Hitler wouldn't hear of it. Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt, Commander-in-Chief of Army Group South, threatened to resign his post if his forces could not withdraw from Rostov-on-Don, far to the east. Hitler accepted his resignation on December 1st, insisting the Wehrmacht continue its drive to the oil fields of the North Caucasus. The next day, though, Hitler had to approve that very withdrawal, to the Mias River west of Rostov. On December 8th, as I mentioned, Hitler issued Fuhrer Directive Number 39, ordering the forces in the east to go to a defensive posture without winter clothing. The Wehrmacht is in Russia in December without winter clothing. 
because Hitler said the invasion would be a success by August. Okay, September. Okay, November. Before winter. Definitely. Isn't faith a great thing? Now, let's rewind just a bit to December 5th when Operation Typhoon stalled before reaching its goal of Moscow. The Soviet counterattack to drive the Germans away from Moscow, which they called the Winter Campaign, began on December 5th. Don't you love it? Uh, the Soviets call their operations the Winter Campaign, the Lvov Sandomir's offensive. The Germans came up with cool names for things, Operation Typhoon, Operation Barbarossa. The Soviets just say, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the winter campaign. Right. It's somehow very communist. But anyway, that campaign, the winter campaign of 1941, began on December 5th, 1941. Or did it? Before we get into that, let's back up again a little bit and take a look at a couple of other um, campaigns or events. Rostov, as I mentioned, the city at the mouth of the Don River where it empties into the Sea of Azov, uh, basically defining the Sea of Azov. So as early as September 1941, so we're going back, you know, three, four months, German Army Group South, under General Gerd von Rudstedt, advanced along the Sea of Azov toward the city of Rostov. That was its objective. It was a Russian city at the mouth of the Don River, and taking it and holding it would open up the routes to the oil fields of the Caucasus, that ultimate goal. This would literally fuel the German war machine. The Red and 9th and 18th Armies counterattacked in September, bogging down the German forces. The 1st Panzer Army and its allied Romanian forces moved in and managed to partially encircle two Red Armies. This told Hitler that Rostov was as good as in German hands at that point. But, well, we'll see. Anyway, the 11th Army, under Manstein, withdrew from the Rostov offensive in order to break into Crimea, which we covered in previous episodes. This left the responsibility for actually taking Rostov to the 1st Panzer Army, commanded at that point by General Ewald von Kleist. The 1st Panzer Army had help from the Romanian 3rd Army, the Italian Alpine Corps, and the Slovakian Motorized Brigade. Together, they captured the town of Tagenrog, just west of Rostov, on October 17th. Remember the date, October 17th. But as I said before, this was the Rasputitsa, the season of no roads. The mud slowed the German advance slower than a crawl. One German officer complained that they were advancing, quote, meter by meter, end quote. Which meant that they didn't reach the city of Rostov itself for another month. 
On November 17th, so it's exactly one month later, the assault on the city began. The Germans captured the city on November 21st. Less than a week later, the 37th Red Army under Lieutenant General Anton Lopatin counterattacked from the north, forcing the Germans to withdraw. So, so much for having it in German hands. Anyway, Hitler countermanded the retreat, but eventually his generals convinced him that it was the only way to preserve German forces in that area. The 1st Panzer Army pulled back to the Mias River at Taganrog, where they had begun on October 17th, so it's more than a month before. This was the first significant German retreat of the war, and it began on December 2nd, 1941. So that was Rostov in the south. To the north, German Army Group North had all but encircled Leningrad by October but by 8th November, found themselves locked at ice south of the Volkov River. Take a look at the map 2 in the show notes, or in the blog post for this episode. On November 12th, the 4th Red Army under General Kirill Meretskov, supported by the 52nd and 54th Armies, attacked and pushed the Germans back across the Volkov River. The Volkov Front, which was those three armies, the 4th, 52nd, and 54th, recaptured the town of Tikvin, southeast of Lake Ladoga, 200 kilometers east of Leningrad, on December 10th. This was the first large-scale Soviet success of the war. Now, a lot of uh, battles and initiatives are called the first German defeat, the first Soviet success, the first uh, German retreat. Um, Anyway, this one had the effect, though, of tying the Germans down in the north. And that helped the Soviets relieve the pressure on Moscow in uh, late October, early November 1941, a critical period. So this leads us up to the Moscow counteroffensive. But that will have to wait till next episode. We're at uh, close to half an hour now, and I think it's now a good time to take a break, wait uh, for another two weeks for the Moscow counteroffensive. We look at another major change on the Eastern Front. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, everything that's happening, especially in this episode, with everything that's going on in the the north, in the center, and in the south, please take a look at the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. Also, you can find it at beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks also to everyone who supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, um, which I hope to bring in uh, very soon, and uh, also to uh, research and 
anything that's left over goes to support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees in this terrible time. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, please do let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.